Taking Racial Struggles to the Throne of Grace, United We Pray is a ministry devoted to praying about racial strife, especially between Christians. I'm the host, Isaac Adams. You're listening to season four of the show, and I have a guest here with us, professor of missiology at Seattle Pacific University, where he's led on global and urban ministries and author of Race and Place, published by IVP Books in 2017. I have here David Leong. David, thank you for joining me. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, David, one reason I wanted to have you on is because I loved your book. Uh, it's one of the most helpful books I've read on race and a kind of starter kit I'm putting together. It's one I suggest. Uh, and you've made the argument that whenever we're talking about race, we're necessarily talking about place. What do you mean? Yeah, thanks um, again for the invitation. It's, um, you know, it's always just humbling to have your work taken seriously. And so I appreciate that. Um, in terms of that first question about linking race to place, um, it really is just the reality that um, race is never uh, an abstract idea as much as we could uh, define it in many ways as a social construct. When I think about race in the everyday life, especially because I focus a lot on um, theology and ministry in the context of cities, I really think about how um, racial realities are lived out in geographic space, meaning that um, how race is constructed, perceptions of the body, and so forth, are most are to me most concrete and most uh, uh, kind of relatable in everyday life when we think about how uh, race gets worked out in geography. So, um, and so that's just attention to place. Attention to place is just thinking about the meaning of the the spaces where we've made our lives, where we live, where we wake up, where we go to work. Um, and so, in some ways, um, for me, it's hard to separate talking about race as an abstract idea from what it means to live in a racialized society um, every day as an embodied person, you know, on the sidewalk, in the car, on a freeway, and so forth. Yeah, you say uh, in your book, whether we're just getting to uh, the reality of it in some sense, you say whether we recognize it or not, too many of our lives, especially in our cities, are functionally separated by issues of race and class. Uh, in fact, you talk about patterns of exclusion. What are these patterns? Yeah, these uh, these patterns to me are all around us. And I think because I've studied cities for so long, I see them everywhere, but I recognize we don't often um, think about them in a more intentional way. Um, just a couple of patterns. Um, like for me, one of the easiest uh, to start with is just uh, housing. Uh, where we live, the neighborhoods where we, um, you know, spend our, our days, um, the ways in which those neighborhoods came into being and who lives where and who doesn't live in a particular place, uh, those things are um, deeply embedded in the fabric of how cities work. And so another pattern would be looking at uh, education and structures of education. It's really easy uh, to map kind of, um, for example, desirable or expensive housing and desirable schools. And so the links between housing and education, um, you know, we, I could talk a long time about that, but I would say that to me, when I look at a city anywhere, um, I look at housing, I, I look at education, and I see pretty predictable patterns about who is where and why. Um, I think there's probably more I could say about that, but um, maybe that's enough to start. 
So David, uh, these, these patterns of exclusion and in, in these matters we're talking about, how have you understood these not only to be sociological realities, but biblical ones? Because you reference the scriptures a ton in your book. Yeah, I just think it's really um, critical to uh, read scripture with that, with a similar lens, you know, paying attention to place, paying attention to how local geography and those realities shaped the ancient world. Um, it really brings the text to life in new ways to think about the cities, of the Roman empire, to think about uh, the places where people, for example, in the book of Acts, how these new communities were understanding themselves in real time and space. And so, um, you know, for example, uh, when Paul talks about in Christ, there being no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Those categories are not just, again, abstract social classifications, but the ways in which those groups were divided from one another happened, you know, in real communities, in real, um, you know, uh, port cities and in places where cultures were mixing. And so, so for me, I just think it's critical to read scripture with, with that sort of awareness as well. David, you say that whenever you teach on these matters, many of our initial impulses are to identify as, quote, good people. Uh, Let me just quote you at length here. So you say, whenever I facilitate conversations about race, uh, I notice that many of our initial impulses are to identify ourselves as good people. Uh, As we react to the shameful connotations of racism, it seems that we reflexively want to defend ourselves with, I'm not a racist and I'm not a judgmental person. Uh, This impulse, while understandable, is somewhat missing the point. Rarely do I encounter a student or a churchgoer who harbors an active, explicit prejudice against another racial group. But as I often say in my classroom, if this lack of overt racism means that I'm not a racist and you're not a racist, then why is there still so much racial inequality and conflict today? Surely there must be some explanation for this disconnection. So, David, that question, your question, I'm just going to pose back to you. Why is there still inequality and conflict today? (laughs) You know. Without, without, if I'm not a racist yeah. and you're not a racist. Yeah, I mean, I think I spend at least a, a significant chunk of a chapter or two in the book really just talking about how place and geography is one of the tools that I use to move our conversations about racial conflict or racial division from one in which we're talking only in terms of individual morality and relationships into Uh, more intentionally thinking about race in a structural, um, you know, um, in in a broader context that has to do not just with my particular sensibilities about other people, but with things like policies and and literal physical structures that come about as a a result of racial segregation. So I think that I get it. You know, when I was writing that, I just was thinking about how often we have to get through um, what author Robin DiAngelo calls just white fragility, right? This, um, that's another conversation, but in part, I think there's, there's so much because of the history, because of the really complex and painful history of race in the United States, anytime we broach the conversation, it is, it feels to me like I have to spend the first 20 minutes or half an hour delicately handling other people's emotions, right? Of, and especially, especially folks from dominant culture or white folks, uh, you know, who I love. But there's a there's a common sort of inability to get to the heart of the matter, at least, or to me, the um, the complexity of the matter in its structural forms. And so, one of the things I try to do is just to say, hey, um, um, in talking about racism, 
Um, I mean, it's just a very basic, I feel like I make this public service announcement all the time <laughs> in different classroom or church settings where I say like, um, racism, is not, race, racism or, or, or the title of racist is not something you are or are not. Um, as if it's a kind of clear break of, you know, labeling an individual. And I think that that conversation off, almost always devolves into kind of accusations and defensiveness. And that's not how we get, you know, further in having uh, more substantive, meaningful conversations. Instead, I see racism um, is primarily a, a structural and systemic reality in which we all participate. Um, and yet it has very different effects and meanings for different people, depending on, you know, your particular racial background and whether or not you're part of a group that's historically been disenfranchised and so forth. And I think when we do that, my hope is in moving away from the um, I'm a good person defense and moving more into the trying to tackle the structural inequality that's just so deeply embedded in our everyday society. And and um, it doesn't always work, but I, 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 I hope that it's that it takes us further than the sort of everyone agreeing that we're all nice people, right? Well, well, and the irony to me, David, is when, I mean, when you're talking about this, whether in, in Christian context, whether it be the classroom mm-hmm. or a Sunday school classroom, uh, as, as Christians, we should have the category of Romans 3, we're all fallen. We're, we're not good people. I mean, no one is righteous. No, not one, uh, the text says. So it, 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 it's just interesting how we, we want to be fallen, but certain, but only to a certain uh, extent it seems in this conversation at times. Uh, so, David, you're talking about you're talking about specific racial backgrounds and kind of this the structural reality here. Uh, so, you're Chinese, and in the book you say racial logic is the air we breathe, and you illustrate this with your son Jonas saying, "I don't like Chinese people." So, can, can you <laughs> yeah, tell us that a, story? It's funny. My my older son Jonas is now 11, and. Uh, this is a story from some time ago, and I, I often wonder, he's, he started his first year in, in middle school, and I'm thinking, you know, how much longer am I going to get away with having this story in the book? But um, <laughs> Oh, no, Jonas, I apologize. I apologize. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, the short version of the story is basically that, you know, when he was just getting ready for preschool, we were looking for a neighborhood school. And so, yeah, I'm a third-generation Chinese-American. Um, I'm married to a, a first-generation um, Chinese immigrant from Korea. Um, but we are both, we really identify our family identifies as Asian American. And, um, and we live in a very diverse part of Southeast Seattle. So with that said, um, we were looking for a community that would reflect, uh, the diversity of our neighborhood. (coughs) Excuse me. And, um, in part, uh, we could not find that uh, type of preschool where um, I live in a zip code that's roughly 30, 30 to 35% Asian, uh, about 20 to 25% Black, uh, 15% Latino. I've lost my math on the remainder of white, but somewhere in that 30 to 40%. Um, all sure. of that said, it's a pretty <laughs> right, mixed right, right. community, which we love, <clears throat> and we wanted... Uh, his initial preschool experience to reflect that. I mean, I think we live where we live um, very much on purpose. And so one day, I think after eventually setting on, settling on a program that just so happened he was the only non-white uh, kid in the class. 
Um, and, and again, for us at the time, eventually making that decision, we went with a, a school program that was local and, um, you know, happened to be, you know, predominantly white, <clears throat> but we thought he's young enough that maybe this is okay. Uh, maybe he won't notice or may, maybe um, this won't be a big deal. It's a short, you know, it's only a, literally like three hours a day, four days a week. <clears throat> and so one day after picking him up, you know, he had been in the program for a couple of weeks. Um, we were going home. We were stopping by our, our neighborhood sort of grocery store in the neighborhood where we're living, this grocery store um, markets primarily to uh, East Asian immigrant families historically in the community, Chinese, Filipino, Vietnamese, and so forth. So it's kind of this Asian grocery market. And we had been going there for years um, from before Jonas was born. <clears throat> so we stopped there on the way home and he just didn't want to go in. We were trying to pull him out of his little car seat, you know, to go in. And it was just kind of a strange thing. And so as we're as we're struggling with him to get him out of the car to go in here, he basically, uh, he doesn't say this right off the bat, but basically as we're trying to draw out of him, like, hey, what's wrong? Why, why can't we go get our groceries? Um, he tells us that he doesn't like Chinese people. <laughs> and it really, I mean, we both, my wife and I both sort of, I think our initial response was just laughter. We laughed, like, what is he talking about? And where is this coming from? Um, so we started to, ask him we're like well you know what do you mean by that and and um all we could put together was that he had somehow associated this market with chinese people and i think for us the more important thing in the moment was to tell him jonas you are chinese <laughs> so um so if you don't like chinese people it's you know it's, it's a little it's hard to have a conversation like this with someone who's gosh i want to say he was like not quite three at the time and um and uh, and he turned to us and you know very quickly in a way that's still you know just kind of strange and makes us both laugh and also we remember you know the kind of feeling of disturbance with this where he said no I'm not we said you know you're Chinese and he said no I'm not I'm I'm white and um, you know that really just struck us and so you know we we got him out of the seat and got our groceries and went home but we had a long my wife and I had a long talk that evening over um, you know wow, this is, um, you know, I have studied how uh, racial formation begins in, you know, and, you know, from the standpoint of developmental psychology, we know that our earliest memories are impacted by racial categories, but we were just, I just was not expecting to have to deal with that so early. Um, I, I will say one thing, maybe as this is not in the book, but I, I have two boys. Uh, my younger son is three years younger than Jonas. He is, um, blissfully oblivious to, <laughs> to these types of things. And so I think that, you know, in some ways, this is reflective of our, our older son, Jones, just being, you know, from the time he was very young, very just attentive to social environments and just had a lot of apparently thoughts, <laughs> thoughts that he was processing internally. But for us, it was basically just this reminder that, um, you know, these types of formation happen very early on. <clears throat> and um, and maybe there's some conversation in our home talking about but um, about these categories as well. But for us, I think what it has meant from that time forward is that my wife and I have really worked on you know all through his elementary life to say like, hey, you are you are Chinese, and that means that um, you know 
we, we talk about um, his grandparents and the immigration story and how much that's a part of our values and our identity and, and uh, language and food. But we say also, and you are also American, and those things are not in conflict with one another. Um, and so you are not any less American or less Chinese because of your Chineseness or your Americanness. Where it's like you're two things, and that's awesome. <laughs> um, because you know, isn't it great? You get kind of the best of both worlds. But it is it is confusing. I think, um, and I think the w- without launching into a whole conversation around Asian American identity and all of the layers and hybridity that's going on there. Um, for us, the story was just a reminder that this is a kind of, for many people, an inescapable social reality that shapes us. I don't think most people are that attentive to these realities that early. Um, but anyway, it was just a reminder that these are powerful things that are shaping our sense of self from a, from an early age. So, so moving on from that, given given the largeness of the issue, you know, this 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 being something that we factor in into our identity whether or not we're all as astute as Jonas is at three years old that's debatable but we we can talk about uh seeing the reality and the magnitude of the of these issues then the often the response uh is what can we do about it you know and you talk about the temptation to too quickly ask that question uh so you talk about segregated uh segregated spaces and cities uh and people say we want to be bridge builders and peacemakers in context of segregation uh so why is asking what we can do not a bad question but a premature one yeah here i'll have to really um one of the first thoughts that comes to mind um you know soon ra wrote the forward to this and I, i he's a good friend and i appreciate especially his work on lament um because i think one of the critical first steps when we are thinking about racial segregation is not just to move quickly into solutions because that makes us feel better. makes us feel like we're productive, like we're doing something valuable. Um, I think that lament is one of those really neglected uh, practices in the Christian tradition. We see it all throughout the biblical literature. Uh, Lament is uncomfortable um, in various ways, but it's also, I think, important for us to pay attention to the fact that in North America, lament is like a really foreign concept to us. Um, that we don't spend time sitting in places of discomfort. Um, And I think that's one of the, I love the enthusiasm that people bring to wanting to solve problems. But I think we also have to recognize that that impulse to solve problems sometimes comes as a way of coping with discomfort, right? Uh, Rather than saying that, you know, look at this very painful history, we say, well, let's fix it. Let's get right to the solution. We can do it. And it is this very, there's a kind of shallow pragmatism behind that. Um, that makes us feel better. Um, and I think that we need to have those pragmatic conversations. But before we do, um, I think sometimes it's just so critical to take a step back, to take a deep breath, <clears throat> to really um, hear one another, uh, to really listen and sit in that place of saying, um, you know, perhaps our, our impulse to jump to solutions is in fact part of the problem. Right, um, are wanting to are, are wanting to fix it um, is a way of distancing those the ways in which we ourselves need to change, um, and so we can propose any number of say policy solutions that have nothing to do with the inner work that I need to to begin, um, and I think a lot of that is just like sitting with pain, sitting with other people in pain, and. Um, and I think lament is one of those wonderful Christian traditions that we have to draw on, and yet we neglect it. 
So I think uh, that's just maybe one place where I think a lot about, you know, how hard these conversations are and how important it is to move forward while also um, taking into account uh, a practice like lament. In our last episode, listeners, uh, we talked with Mark Rogoff, who uh, wrote a book on lament. So uh, literally, David, our last episode was all about lament. Oh, so wow, I appreciate great. you making that bridge for me. Um, so, so given lament, and given that we've thought about that on the show, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna press you on that. Though it's wonderful mm-hmm. to talk about from the Psalms to the Book of Lamentations uh, to seeing to sitting in the brokenness and even protesting that brokenness. Um, but I, I hear you clearly. You're not saying don't do something. Um, so then how do we disrupt, use that verb, these patterns of exclusion? We're, so we're yeah. lamenting, working on ourselves, um, yet we're talking about the magnitude of things. What does faithful Christian disruption look like? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, in the book, I try to, I try to hit this with a, a few different types of questions. And because I think the, the ways in which each of us can be most constructively disruptive, if that (laughs) makes sense, uh, to these patterns of injustice, I think um, it varies a lot. And so in the book, I talk about location since, you know, there's a lot of exploration of geography and place. But in in particular, I think about location, not just uh, so um, I think the categories I use in the book are um, social location, residential location, and vocational location. So it's to say that, you know, all of us have located our lives in different ways, meaning that there are places where we have put down connections and roots. For some of us, it is a residential address. For some of us, there is um, a neighborhood, a a spot on the block or the corner or the community's, you know, street where where a lot of our lives are anchored. Um, And so that's one of the places where we can begin that work is saying, you know, where has God rooted me in this local community or neighborhood? And how can I use the ways in which my life is mapped over these spaces um, to kind of speak out against injustice, to disrupt, you know, patterns of racialization and so forth. But I think for others, um, whether it's their, um, their social location or their vocational location, there's other ways that they've located themselves in terms of the relationships they have, the kind of work that they're called to. And so the disruption is going to, I think, vary in terms of um, which which, uh, mode of thinking about location, if you will, is is gonna be the most, uh, gonna make the most sense for them and it's gonna reflect their particular gifts and callings. And so I think I, I really try, I don't think I do a great job of this in the book, but as I'm thinking about it now, I really wanna call people to a deep discernment, right? Uh, a deeper discernment around how we can um, engage in our convictions around around what needs to be disrupted. And I think sometimes that there are some collective things. Like I have a chapter on gentrification where I say like, hey, this is this pattern of gentrification, which is, you know, what some people call a new urban colonialism. Um, there are ways in which we can collaborate on disrupting these things together. And it involves, you know, various community efforts. We may talk about that later. But I also think there's, so there's kind of a communal element. There's an individual element. Um, but it's going to vary a lot depending on, you know, what is, I think for some, um, you know, their key place of working this out, you know, may be geographic. But for someone else, that's just not going to work for them. And so they may be leveraging their relationships, their professional network, their particular calling um, in a different atmosphere um, to be disruptive of those patterns there. And so I don't know if that makes sense. Um, 
No, I think it's useful because often, uh, instead of the fix it kind of mentality that we were talking about, uh, I've begun to talk about the faithfulness mentality. So I often go to, uh, um, the parable of the good Samaritan, uh, and Luke 10 and Jesus saying, uh, giving this parable, uh, which is this racialized story. And what we see is, uh, this Samaritan being faithful in his context now is the only expression of justice helping broken, bloody people on the side of the road. No. Uh, but what we saw was what just looked like in the, the Samaritan sphere and uh, his in this geographic location uh, as he was walking. So as the religious people were leaving a place of worship and walking around this person, uh, this marginalized person. So I think that's useful uh, to talk about uh, constructive disruption, uh, having many different expressions. And yet, in your book, David, you emphasize one of those uh, locations, you don't mean a building, but a, a people, you emphasize the church in your book. Why? I, and I love that you do. So this is not a trap question, but I love that. <laughs> so why? Yeah. Oh, man. I uh, The church is my family. You know, I, I grew up in the church. Um, love the church deeply, um, have worked, have spent so much of my life and formation has been because the church, big C, you know, and I, I, across a number of different traditions, I grew up in the Bible Belt in the South. Um, my whole life, I feel like is just marked by um, Sunday school and the choir and church retreats and vacation Bible school and Awanas and youth, youth group and church retreats and campus fellowship, you know, like in, in every season. Um, in one form or another, the church was the community where I felt known and, um, and where I met God, you know, where I met, um, you know, um, where, where I just had these uh, so many profound experiences of understanding who, who God is and what God is doing in the world. And so I think that there is sometimes a temptation to cast aside the church. And I think I'll, I'll be the first. I think there's plenty of I could spend all day um, criticizing the, the church uh, as as one from within who wants so much more for the church to, to be and do. But, um, you know, I still believe that in, in a sense, um, with not defining church in only um, local or denominational terms, but talking about the universal reality of the church, to talk about um, the people of God, um, to me, I think that has to be the place um, where we begin this work. David, this season we're talking about local work. Uh, this is the last question I'll ask you before we pray. We're talking about local work. Uh, you've served in churches in urban Seattle and have thought through neighborhood involvement. So how have you tried to encourage congregations to live down the effects of racism in Seattle specifically? So we've been talking about disruption. Uh, any testimonies, stories here before we pray? Yeah, you know, Seattle is a funny place. Um, it is not a very diverse city. Um, in many ways, Seattle is a, a fast-growing city. It's economically booming because of tech. Um, it is, the, the funny thing I tell my, my students a lot on this campus is the paradox that Seattle is for a lot of people, like, simultaneously the most diverse and least diverse like for some it is the most diverse place they've ever lived in the region because it is kind of the most diverse city in the pacific northwest but for people from you know where you are in dc chicago detroit baltimore memphis <laughs> um, la bay area it is not a very diverse city um, 
And so that's an interesting sort of tidbit around talking about race and diversity in Seattle. But the diversity that is here, I think Seattle, like most other large cities, is functionally segregated by race and class. It's a very sharp north and south divide. Um, I live, you know, in the community south of downtown Seattle where there have, you know, historically um, communities of color lived there because of redlining and so forth. And it continues to be the the place where working class folks and immigrants and refugees get settled. And so um, in some ways, my work with churches in this area, largely because of the fast growth of Seattle is focused a little bit more on gentrification and the realities of gentrification and trying to trying to um, resource congregations um, to stay in places where there's an important history to tell um, and making broader communities aware of that history. But um, if anything, you know, it's easy to get kind of in the weeds in terms of neighborhood policy and thinking about church programming and so forth. Uh, what makes me um, hopeful about the work is uh, probably just the, the congregation that I'm a part of um, in, in, um, in the Rainier Valley. I think this, sh- I'm trying to think of a sh- short story I, I can share. I'll just say one thing about its history. Um, it was a church that almost closed its doors in the 1960s. There was a lot of white flight happening in the area. There was a lot of economic downturn and the denomination came to this church that I'm a part of now. And at the time it was a dwindling number of older white folks who just were being told by the denomination, you guys should close your doors, follow other people who are leaving. I think your time here is done. And, um, the neighborhood was changing. There were refugees coming after the Vietnam war. There were, um, African-Americans and African immigrants coming. And, um, and they just felt like they, you know, the advice they were given was to close up shop and, and flee with the rest. But they were, you know, as a credit to their stubbornness, um, they said, no, we think that God has called us to this street corner that they, that we've been on for a hundred years. And, uh, we think God's not done with whatever, whatever God wants us to do here. And so they said, uh, we're going to stay. And even they told the denomination, they said, we will actually, you can take the building. Uh, we'll leave the denomination if, if that's what it comes to, but we're going to stay on this corner. We'll call our own pastor. We'll set up our own. Um, and, and in many ways, it was really, I don't know if it was an act of stubbornness or courage or providence or some combination of those things. It was a turning point in their history. And they, from that point forward, began to welcome all the Southeast Asian refugees who are coming to the neighborhood. And, uh, and the best part of that story is that you know, the families that they initially welcomed, and they really stumbled through it initially, had no idea what they were doing. But the children of those families that they welcomed are now elders at our church. Mm, praise um, God. And I think, and, and to this day, um, as, you know, I think about some of the DNA of our congregation that is not doing this work of, of diversity because it's, you know, because it's trendy or because they have like a political agenda or because they need to feel a certain way about themselves. It really is just, in my mind, um, just the deepest picture of being faithful to the people that God had called them to and recognizing that God was calling them to love and embrace different kinds of people. And I think the, so the courage and faithfulness that they stepped into that with to say like, we don't know what we're doing, <laughs> but we're going to learn. Um, and we're, we're willing to say yes, um, to me is a, a credit to their faithfulness. So I'm really, I'm really thankful for that. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, as we talk about staying in the work, one necessary practice we're given to on this show is prayer uh, and how it helps us to endure. 
uh, in this work. So David, if you could grab uh, any of the themes we've talked about and open our time in prayer, and then I'll close. And brother, thank you for your book. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and I pray, and I'll pray that God continues to give us wisdom as to what uh, faithful disruption looks like. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Let's uh, let's pray together. Uh, gracious God, I'm just really thankful to have spent this time uh, reflecting, um, prayerfully considering uh, the ways in which uh, you've given me a task um, of of being faithful to this call. Uh, and in particular, I, I'm just mindful of um, the brokenness of your church and the ways in which we have fallen short, the ways in which we have failed to uh, live into the, the, the truth of the gospel story and the radical ways that it transforms us in our communities. And so, God, we, we want to come with a posture of humility and confession and say that we have, um, we have failed to love our neighbors fully, and we want uh, your spirit and your sense of conviction um, to break our hearts and to remind us of, of the ways in which we have fallen short. And yet it's not a place that we want to remain only in sorrow and lament, but we want that repentance to be true. And so, God, we, we pray that in our communities, in our relationships, in the places where we have influence— uh, that you would um, turn us toward our neighbors in love, um, that you would turn us toward our coworkers, toward our partners, towards strangers, um, and that somehow we would be um, a people who uh, begin to see your image and the, the dignity and worth in all people, uh, especially in those who we've been maybe preconditioned to see as less than or other. And so, God, it is a, a monumental task, and we are... Uh, both humbled and da- by the daunting size of it, and yet we ask um, by the power of your spirit that you would um, help us each in our particular spaces uh, to be faithful. And so, God, would you move uh, in us that we would have the c- conviction and the courage to do that faithfully, um, to love more freely, uh, to come with more humility, and to, uh, to see uh, your image in others. Amen. Father, we do pray uh, that you would give us wisdom uh, to see patterns of exclusion around us. Lord, these things can be hard to see. Uh, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom in what to read and how how to think about these matters that that our brother David has uh, given himself to and thinking through. Lord, we do pray that you would bless uh, him and his family. Father, we, we thank you for him being vulnerable and sharing about uh, the power and uh, our identities being formed. And most of all, Lord, we pray that Christ would be the Lord of our identities, uh, that he first and foremost would define us. Uh, Father, we do pray that because Christ defines us, we would go about imaging you further, Lord, in justice and righteousness and love and mercy, and compassion. Father, we pray uh, that we would better understand uh, the air we breathe and see uh, the good and the bad of it. Father, we pray that we would better understand the structures in place, uh, Lord, and all that, uh, all the ways we are either complicit in supporting and supporting bad ones, uh, Father, and how we can, like those people uh, of the church uh, at Rainier, Lord, 
uh, even with little wisdom, go forward trusting you uh, that we want to love our neighbors uh, and, and to see over time, Lord, what you're doing. Father, we pray uh, for grace to be to be faithful examples like those brothers and sisters. We thank you for the faithfulness you've given them. Oh, so Lord, we pray that you would make us faithful people, Lord. It's so easy to want to say, I'm a good person, uh, Father, but we know that we're only counted righteous in Christ. Uh, so Lord, we, we're not here to be quote-unquote good people. We're here to be faithful people. So would you show us what that looks like? Uh, as we live in areas and cities, some of us in rural places, others of us separated, there are areas that are separated by race and class. Lord, this grieves us. Uh, Lord, we, we don't want to provoke that. We want to help it. So, so would you help us, Lord? Lord, we don't want to be naive. We don't want to have a fix-it mentality. Lord, we come to you because only you can fix this ultimately. So use us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. David, if people want to find your work, obviously they can pick up the book, but if people want to find you, uh, w- w- what do they do? <laughs> That's a, you know, this is generally the place where I, I, I would uh, relay all of my social media locations. It's funny, I'm, I'm kind of taking a step back from social media. I mean, I, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. You, you can find me in those places. That might be the wisest thing you've said this entire episode. <laughs> I completely respect that. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it, in a lot of ways, so I, I'm there. I'm qu- kind of lurking these days, um, trying to carve out a little space of, of relief from the incessant nature of, of social media. But I can't be found. So, um, you know, would encourage folks to reach out. Yeah, on either of those platforms. Um, Great. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, brother uh, listeners. You can join us at youwepray.com. That's the letter U, wepray.com. You can check out articles. You can subscribe uh, to our letter that we, we send out. We don't hound your inboxes. We encourage you to check out helpful resources like David's. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to United We Pray. Grace and peace. Pray.